Good morning. It's good to be with everyone this morning. Uh, one little word of personal privilege, you might say, is that uh, you might not realize this, but I'm, I'm actually one of your missionaries now. Um, beginning in January, and this church began supporting me in my labor that Jonathan is so... Uh, graciously explained to you, and I'm thankful for Downtown Prez and for the support that you give me as a missionary uh, serving college students and, and the, uh, the staff of RUF, so thank you so much. Uh, our passage, as you can see in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible, you can open there, is Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the, the last few verses of Genesis chapter 1. One thing you need to know about, know about me, besides that I work for RUF, is that I love music. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of music. And um, one of my favorite albums in the last few years was put out by a guy named Sturgill Simpson. And it's a, an album called A Sailor's Guide to Earth. Now, as much as I love the, the music on A Sailor's Guide, the thing that had really sort of won me over uh, in time... Uh, with this album was the story that is actually behind it. Uh, Sturgill Simpson had a son that was born right around the time that his previous album was released. So he's obligated to release this album. He's obligated, of course, to tour for that album. And so he, for the first you know year or so, has to watch his son, his newborn son, his firstborn, grow up from afar. And that experience was the inspiration behind this album, A Sailor's Guide. He he wrote the songs so that he could give his son a guide to life. Listen more specifically what he said. He says this. He said he wanted his son to know, quote, that it's very important to me that he doesn't have to grow up and be this numb, callous person to feel like he's a man. I wanted him to know it's okay to be empathetic and compassionate and sensitive, whoever he grows up to be. I love that. He wants his son to know who he should be. Now, isn't that something that all of us here uh, can relate to? To know ourselves in that way. To know who we should be. To answer what I would say is a nagging question of your heart. The question being, who am I? Who am I? You may not know you asked that question. You may know you asked that question and you just don't have any idea how to answer it. Either way, it's a question that our hearts ask. And I think... I think one of the reasons why we see um, a proliferation these days of genetic testing services is because of this question that's within us. Who am I? Something like 23andMe. I think that's the most popular one. That's the one I seem to hear and read the ads for. You order their kit. You send in a, a saliva sample. And then voila, comes, you, know, you get a report that comes back to you. You you learn more about your traits. You learn more about your, your ancestry. You learn about potential health risks. I mean, services like these, are, they stay in business because of this longing that we have to know who we are. Or how about you Enneagrammers out there? You know who you are. 
why is a centuries-old, if not millennia-old system of self-knowledge, why has it become all the rage? I think it's to answer in part this question, who am I? One Enneagram author dramatically put it this way, more and more I'm convinced that the paramount question plaguing humanity has to do with identity. Who am I? This is the fundamental question of our human experience, the one that compels us to search for meaning. Now, make no mistake, I don't want you to sit here and think, oh, this is, this is such an egocentric question. These, these, you know, millennials, not that I'm even claiming to be a millennial, I'm too old for that, but, you know, it, this isn't some selfish question that's being asked by a certain selfish generation, okay? This is a basic question of human existence. John Calvin, hardly an apologist for the millennial generation, I would say. John Calvin, in his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he begins by arguing that without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. So, our question, who am I? It's a basic one of human existence. And you're not going to be surprised to hear me say that it's in the opening chapter of the Bible uh, that we find a very profound answer to that question, who am I? If you would, look in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. And this is God's word, and it's our rule for faith and for life. Genesis 1, verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in it, its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our Lord, it stands, to get, stands forever. Uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which is truth. Now, the psalmist says that those who delight in and meditate upon your word, that they will be like trees planted by streams of water. So that's my prayer for us now. Father, would we be as trees planted by streams of water? 
For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So who am I? In his book, Reset, pastor and author David Murray, he says this. It's in your bulletin in the beginning of your bulletin if you want to read along. David Murray says this. Our answer to that question, who am I, about our basic identities, the way we think about ourselves, impacts everything in our lives. Our self-image, our health, our spirituality, our ethics, our roles and relationships, our careers, and our view of the past, the present, and the future. Answer it right, and we flourish. Answer it wrong, and we wither. Now, I think the answer to this question, who am I? I think the, the, the foundational answer to this question, it's found in our passage. It comes at creation in verses 26 and 27. And there it says that mankind defined as male and female, and, and that's the way I'm going to be defining it in my sermon. So you, if I say man, mankind, I'm referring to male and female, right? They are created in God's image, according to those verses. Again, look at verses 26 and 27. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Go down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. them. Within those verses is one of the most important teachings in the entire Bible. It's the creation of man in God's image. Not as one philosopher put it, the accidental collocations of atoms. No, man created in the image of God. That's mankind. That's you and that's me. Now, in particular this morning, we're really going to be focusing our time not on this entire uh, eight verses, but really on verses 26 and 27. And I want to explore just two simple thoughts regarding uh, those verses. And the first is what it means, and the second is what it means for us. So what it means and what it means uh, for us. So first, what it means, what it means to be created in God's image. Maybe most obvious to us is that bearing God's image means that mankind is unique within the created order because there is an inherent dignity to us that other, that other created things just simply do not share. That's the first sort of sub-point under what it means, right? We have an inherent dignity, dignity to us that other created things just, they don't share. Do you notice that as we read the text? Uh, you, you read verses 24 and 25 that lead up to man's creation. We see in those couple verses that all of the living creatures are created How? according to their kind. Okay? Five times in those two verses, in fact, it says that all of these creatures are created according to their kind. You, you go back to the previous five days of creation. We, did, we didn't read this part of the text, but you go back to the previous five days, and it's the same thing. Plants, trees, fish, birds, they're created according to their kind but not man who is created according to God's kind. 
in God's image. That's astounding when you think about it. We are inherently dignified within creation. This is why it says at the end of verse 31 that the creation is very good. Up until that point, it's always been, you know, it was good and it was good and it was good. After man's creation, then it's pronounced very good. I think this is one of the reasons it leads C.S. Lewis to say that there are no ordinary people. There is an inherent dignity, a glory even, about mankind that sets us apart from, from everything else in all of creation. None of you are ordinary as a result. So we see what it means that not only, we see what it means not only in mankind's inherent dignity as God's image bearers, but also in mankind's inherent ability to reflect God. Being God's image bearer on earth means that we best reflect who he is, his character. It means that we best reflect what he has done, his work, his character and work. We best reflect him. I want you to think of it like a mirror. When the triune God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, he made mankind to be a mirror of him on earth. Mankind was to be a, a type of reflection of God in the earth. We said that earlier, in, in fact, I think, in a, I think it was in our prayer. Being God's image bearer, no other created thing has the inherent ability to reflect who he is and what he has done like us. Birds and fish, trees and mountains, they don't reflect God as fully as you are able. You have the best ability to reflect God's character, who he is, traits like holiness, love, knowledge, mercy. These are characteristics of God that mankind can imitate, that we can reflect. You have the best ability to reflect what God has done, his work. When a musician writes, he reflects God's creative work. When, a, when a, an architect designs, she reflects God's dominion over the earth. In all of this, you are uniquely qualified to reflect God's image in the world, to be mirrors that reflect who he is and reflect what he's done. Now, we know the reality. We we confessed this just a few minutes ago. We're not very good mirrors. There's something about us that's not quite right. You might say we're cracked. That's because of mankind's fall from grace in Genesis chapter 3, just a few chapters ahead. I want you to think of the fall having the same effect um, on us as if looking at yourself now in a cracked mirror. Okay? You look at yourself in a cracked mirror and your, your head maybe looks like uh, it's over here. Your nose looks like it's been broken a few times. 
your upper body maybe is in this spot and your lower body, it's sort of over here, right? Everything is askew. You still look at the mirror and, and you see yourself, you recognize yourself, but everything's askew. This is what the fall has done to, to man as God's image bearers. There are still bits and pieces of the image of God recognizable in us, but the mirror is cracked now. And everything, everything is just askew. We don't reflect well anymore who God is. We don't reflect well anymore uh, what he's done. Sin has wreaked havoc in us, and now we're cracked. Now, thankfully, the story doesn't end there. And by the way, we're still talking here about what it means. I, I realize that we're kind of bleeding in a little bit to my, my second point here, but we're still talking about what it means. The story doesn't end there. We saw this, of course, in our assurance of pardon. God graciously offers to mankind the chance to be recreated into his image through Jesus The one the Bible calls the image of God, Colossians 1. The Bible calls him the exact representation of God's being in Hebrews chapter 1. So how does God do this? How does God recreate us in this way back into his image? Well, in believing in Jesus as God's one and only answer to our crackedness, you might say, to our fallenness, to our brokenness, In that moment, God gives uh, the believer the Holy Spirit. And he begins this this lifelong process of remaking the believer back into the image of his son, who is the image of God. It's a process we call sanctification. Uh, Think of it a little bit like we're a home and fixer-upper. You know, at at one time, mankind was this, this sparkling new home. New floors, uh, you know, new appliances. The paint was fresh. The landscaping was just, was perfect. But then the fall changes that to the house, you know. The, the kitchen is dated. Uh, the appliances, they're, they're not running so well. There's weeds, more weeds than there is lawn in your lawn. Uh, uh, you know, the paint is like 1980s mauve. Okay, it's just everything about the house is just dated and old. And then, of course, in the show, along come Chip and Joanna Gaines, and they, and they remake that which was old. Well, this is what's happening. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit's presence and work, the, whole, the Christian becomes this fixer-upper, right? Recreated to reflect the image of God. Now, I understand the ha- we as Christians have a very active role in this process. The house does not, right? The house is completely passive. But you get the idea that here what's happening is that God is remaking something new. And we who believe, we are the people whom he is making new. So that's what it means to be created in God's image. It means that we're unique in the created order because we have this inherent dignity to us that no one else, nothing else in creation has. We have this inherent ability to reflect God that, that nothing, else in, nothing else in creation can do as well as us. For the time remaining, I want to see what it means now for us. Of course, I, I've been touching on this, like I said, but there's more to it. 
two things. It reshapes the way that we look at ourselves, and it reshapes the way that we look at others. Reshapes the way that we look at ourselves and then others as well. In reading magazines or social media or watching television and movies today, our culture preaches lots of sermons about what to believe, what we're supposed to be believing about ourselves. You know, identity protection, of course, is a a big deal now in our age. Uh, Certainly something that's critical to us is protecting our identity. Hardly a month goes by, right? Even a week goes by, it seems like, and there's not some major security breach that's potentially affecting uh, our, our identity. That, the Equifax one from a couple years ago, 143 million people were affected. A fourth of Amer- or no, 40% of America was affected by that one. I want you to appreciate that your social security number isn't nearly as vulnerable from computer hackers and email fishers as your identity is vulnerable as an image bearer of God. Friends and family, TV, social media, vloggers, bloggers, music and movies, neighbors, coworkers, all of, the, all of these things want us to be stronger and smarter and thinner and curvier and blonder, bolder, funnier, sexier. Okay, if you listen to the sermons of our culture, you hear this all the time. But if you're to think Christianly about yourselves, if you're to sort of, you know, just sort of breathe in what the Bible says about you, what your creator says about you, then you have to see that what the Bible says is that you are unique, that you are glorious, that you are dignified simply in being human. None of you are ordinary as a result. You are God's image bearer on earth. Let's put this into some perspective. I I really want you to do this for a moment. I want you to think about the most beautiful thing that you have seen in the created world. The most, what is it? The most beautiful thing that you've seen in the created world A couple years ago, that the, um, the total eclipse completely blew my mind. I was one of those guys that was just so ready for all the hype, and then it just it blew my mind. Unbelievable event. Maybe you've seen the northern lights. I, I long, I hope, someday to see the northern lights. Maybe for you, it's just, you know, driving the Blue Ridge Parkway in October. Maybe you've seen the, a bald eagle just, just riding the, the winds along the coast of South Carolina. Maybe you've been to one of our nation's national parks. What is it? What, what comes to mind when you think of that? Whatever it is, each one of you here today is far more glorious than what it is you're picturing. A total eclipse, it it can't say it was created in God's image. 
nor can the northern lights, nor that eagle, nor the foliage in October, nor, you know, Yellowstone. They're not made in the image of God. Only you can boast of that privilege. And that makes you glorious. St. Augustine puts it this way. Men go abroad to admire the heights of mountains, the mighty waves of the sea, the broad tides of rivers, the compass of the ocean, and the circuit of the stars. And yet pass over the mystery of themselves without a thought. King David puts it this way in Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When looking in a mirror or contemplating just life and yourself, when's the last time you thought of yourself as fearfully and wonderfully made? And yet, that's what you are, wonderfully made in God's image. So worth loving that Jesus would take on human flesh and he would come to serve as a sacrifice for you to ensure that you could be everything that you were created to be as an image bearer of God. That's what it means for us as we look at ourselves. It also affects the way that we look at others. Of course, the fact that you've been created in God's image, it also means that, hey, you know, those around you, they've also been created in God's image. They too are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your roommate, the driver that was slowing you down on the way here and you missed that light and you got here late, your incoherent grandmother in the nursing home, your hovering parents, your teenager. These are your fellow image bearers. That homeless woman, that unborn child with Down syndrome, that urban black man, that rural white man, that immigrant, that politician. Friends, these are your fellow image bearers. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet James says this, a scathing rebuke, he says this, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So what it means for us to be created in God's image, if we let this truth sink deep into our bones, it should transform the way that we look at ourselves. It should transform the way that we look at, that we we live with, that we interact with others around us. A number of years ago, I was in a, a waiting room, and I picked up a copy of the science magazine, Discover. 
Now, I'm not normally a, a reader of uh, Discover Magazine. I was an English major at Clemson. But here's the, the, the headline on the cover caught my eye. Here's a magazine that holds, you know, very dearly uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. And yet the cover on, the, on this particular issue said the powers of creation. Well, it was like clickbait, you know. I, I was just like, oh, I'm curious about this. And so, I, right, I picked it up and I started reading it and working my way through it. I was disappointed, though not surprised, to see the author conclude this. He said, every complex species owes its unpredictable existence to the sloppy sources of evolution's creativity. We are quirky if glorious accidents. We are quirky if glorious accidents. Now, I wish I could say it was some radical loner uh, that wrote this article, but we all know that's not the case. This is what the majority of our world believes, certainly here in the States. Who am I? According to this Harvard biology professor, you and I are we're nothing more than an accident, except for the complexity of us. We're no different inherently than a a shark or a pig or a spider or a squirrel. That answer about our origin, it doesn't satisfy me, and I'm betting it doesn't satisfy most of you. Instead, in the Bible's opening chapter, I hope you see something more, something that answers that question that burns in your heart. Who am I? Who am I? In his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky said, the mystery of human life is not only in living, but in knowing why one lives. Well, God himself created you gloriously in his image, not by some accident, but to be in relationship with him through Jesus Christ reflecting him as no other created thing could possibly do as well as you. That is who you are. That, friends, is why you live. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, uh, we thank you for this word of truth that speaks into our lives, especially when there are so many competing voices. Again, we pray that you would take these words, that we would delight and meditate upon them, and that in so doing, we would be as trees planted by streams of water. We ask this in no other name but that of the Lord Jesus. Amen.